You want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. We're going to, and you might just put a bookmark there because we're going to be looking at that for the majority of our time tonight. I will say before we begin, I really love that, that especially that last hymn that we just got to sing. Uh, and it even was something that was said during the Bible class that even made me think about that hymn this morning. So it's kind of serendipitous that it uh, got led tonight. But um, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful hymn and just really, I think, kind of perfect lyrics to guide us into what we're going to be talking about uh, this evening as we look at Psalm 88 and we look at, I think, a good case study of how our prayers need to be with God and how maybe, unfortunately, our prayers will sound from time to time, maybe even often throughout this life with God. Psalm 88 is not necessarily the most positive of psalms that you read throughout the, the entire book of the psalms. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, we even talked about this this morning, it says, pray without ceasing. How easy is it to pray without ceasing and, and not let it go on the back burner when times are comfortable? I think it's kind of easy to let it go by the wayside a little bit. You know, maybe don't pray too much because, I mean, why bother? Everything's going well. I think the, the temptation is more so when times are easy. Now, when times are bad, I think even then it may be a bit more because we are reminded we need God. And so we go to him a few times in prayer. But even then, I think that we still just very, you know, give a quick, very inconsiderate prayer to God and then we move on to the things that well that, that are actually going to help us out and when the moments come that are not just a little bit uh, you know tumultuous when it's not just difficult when it's not just hard but when we feel like we can't find God what then because there will be moments like that and really that's what this song talks about the title of this lesson is a troubled prayer because Psalm 88 I would wager to say, is the most sorrowful psalm that you read throughout the entire book. It is filled and surrounded with darkness. In fact, the last word in the psalm is darkness. And so what I want to do is just read very quickly this psalm. In Psalm 88, verse 1, it's a very short psalm. Psalm 88, at the very beginning, it says, A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, for the choir director, according to Mahaleth Lanith, a maskil of Heman the Ezrahite. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul has had enough troubles and my life has drawn near to Sheol. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more and they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit in dark places in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out, and almost is reminiscent to some language you hear from Job. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. Oh, I have spread out my hands to you. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O oh Lord, have cried out to you for help. And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. 
Oh, Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They have surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me altogether. You have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. That's not the psalm we particularly like to go to when we're looking for encouragement. Most of the time what you find is a psalm tends to start like this and it starts in doubt, it starts in seeming defeat, but then it you know, comes in at the very end and it concludes with a very overwhelming and a very clear victory. Here this psalm, it doesn't, it doesn't go that way. This psalm helps us, I think, because of that, figure out how to pray and grow even in these moments when it feels like everything around us is just darkness. I don't know where to go. I, just like the words of Psalm 22, I, I don't know where you are right now. And I'll tell you what, I know that this is a conversation that we don't really like to have, but it's a conversation we need to have regardless because if you're not going through that right now, we will go through it eventually. You just give it time. The devil's really good at what he does. And we need to be prepared for when those moments come. And we need to start practicing now in our prayers so that way we can pray effectively and pray reverently and appropriately to God in those moments. And I think this is a good case study of that. Now, just three points that I want to make from, from the psalmist as he goes throughout this, this song, this prayer, as he feels this way. And first of all, I would just say, as he's praying through uncertainty, he honestly speaks to God. Now, there's some balance here, and we're going to end with that, that balance. We don't want to go too far in our language, but like the psalmist, we need to learn to open up with God. We need to learn how to be open with God. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, he says that we are supposed to cast our anxieties, our burdens onto him. That's a commandment, that God wants us to give him all of our burdens. Now, even though that's a commandment, I think really what's more beautiful is the fact that he says, I want you to do this. I want you to unload. I want you to unburden yourself by putting them on me. And what a picture of the cross there. But regardless, even with that beautiful picture, unfortunately, while we have that promise, while that sounds nice, while it sounds very intimate, I don't think many Christians do this. I just don't. I think, in fact, a lot of the time, we get uncomfortable when we hear prayers like this. Prayers that even David would speak. And, and I think we need to learn how to, how to do this effectively. Over in Isaiah chapter 37, here's a very interesting passage and a very, one of my favorite stories. Isaiah chapter 37, this is after the, the invading forces are trying to take Judah. It is just Judah. The northern kingdom has been taken. And so you can kind of understand maybe where Hezekiah is coming from as a leader of this nation. He's thinking, I've got to keep this intact. This is God's nation. This is God's people. And what's going on around us? The northern kingdom's gone. And now here they are at our doorstep and they're trying to take us apart and it looks like they can have the victory pretty easily, in fact. And so you can just imagine Hezekiah, what's surrounding him, but, but nothing but darkness. We don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Now, look at what he does when the, the, he's, he's named the Rabshakeh. He's, one, he's the, uh, the official that is sent by King Sennacherib as, as he's trying to attack Judah. And he brings this letter to Judah and specifically to the people within. And he's trying to taunt them. He's trying to scare them. And really he's threatening them. 
And Hezekiah takes that letter from the messengers. And look at what he does here in Isaiah chapter 37 and verse 14. In verse 14, it says, he took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And afterwards, he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And then he prays a most beautiful prayer from verses 15 through 20. We don't have enough time to look at that. But I just think, just, just in verse 14, how many times, how many of us have brought our anxieties, our burdens to God like this? Now, sometimes people will say, and we'll even talk about this more, well, God already knows what's going on. Yeah, he does. Do you not think Hezekiah understands that? Look at the prayer. You, you are the creator. There is, no, there is nothing but you. All these gods that they serve, they're wooden stone. They're dumb and mute. You are the all-powerful, omniscient God, omnipotent God. And so Hezekiah understands that God knows everything, but that doesn't stop him from doing the appropriate thing, and that is coming to God and giving it to him, giving, out, giving these pleas to God, and not just trying to hide it. And, 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 and as we look at the psalmist here in Psalm 88, I think that's exactly what he does. He's not trying to hide his feelings, but he's bringing them before God. You have another story in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, chapter 1 and verse, verses 9 through 15 that, that woman Hannah who was barren didn't have any sons all she wanted was a son and she goes and while everyone else is feasting and having a great time she is weeping bitterly in her prayer to God just asking please just give me a son and if you give me a son I will give him to you and he will be under your service and that son would be Samuel so what a beautiful story that is but, but she's just weeping bitterly through that prayer and when Eli comes up she, she, he sees her bent down and her mouth is moving and so he thinks she's drunk and he says basically put your wine away from you don't, don't come to God get rid of it and, and what she responds with is I'm not drunk I'm oppressed in spirit and what I'm doing is I'm pouring out my soul to God that's what she was doing and I, and I love that thought I love that picture from Hezekiah to Hannah, this is how we should pray, especially in the moments where we are just overburdened. We need to give those burdens over to God, and we can't, be, we can't act like we have it all together when we really do not. She was oppressed in spirit, she says. I think we tend to just say when we start feeling like this, we, we, we pray to God because we know that we're commanded to, so we pray, Lord, help me with my emotions, full stop. We don't get into any of the meat. We don't get into any of the real core issues. We just kind of stop there. I would say again, do you really think God doesn't know what's going on? <laughs> Many people would be uncomfortable weeping in a private prayer. Why? why? Why are we uncomfortable giving these burdens to God and sharing these concerns with Him? Do we really think that we serve a God that does not care? Do we really think that we serve a God that, that is going to pick us apart when we do, when we're just honest? about our frailties and how we falter and how we need guidance, we need help. Now, we need to be open with him even when the prayer is more difficult and when it is less certain for us. We, we must still be bringing those petitions, must still bring those emotions to God. And again, I don't think many people like to do this at all. And I think one of the main reasons is because when we pray, we want to sound confident. We like our prayers to be confident. I want to pray like Elijah. I love how he, on Mount Carmel, how bold he is and how confident he is, well, until you get to 1 Kings chapter 19, because even he gets overwhelmed a time or two. But we want to be able to pray those beautiful, confident prayers, like these figures that we look up to, these, these older brothers that we have through Christ. And when, when we can't pray like that, what we do is we kind of hold back because we don't want 
our prayers to sound so overwhelmed. We want them to sound more bold when facing affliction. But again, that's just not how life goes. Life frequently gives us, gives us a really good, uh, well, whopping. It really likes to make things hard. It really likes to make the days worse and worse. And when we feel like, well, I got, <laughs> there was one time some things were going on with, uh, uh, not between me and Paige, but there were some things going on in, in our lives. And <laughs> there, there was a problem everywhere. There was a problem, you know, socially. There was a problem with family. There was a problem with, you know, the house. And at one point, the dryer just turned off. And it, for, we could not get it to start working. And we just looked at each other and I said, well, that's consistent. And we both started busting out laughing because, it, I mean, that's what it felt like. It seemed like every single day something else was going to happen. Beautiful ending of that story, though. I actually fixed it. Not often I can do that. Did you know that even you know, things like washing machines have oil? That's crazy, but regardless. Um, but, but regardless, it, it, there are going to be moments where we feel like those, those moments just compound, on, just keep on coming and keep increasing, and it's not going to stop. And a lot of times we get so overwhelmed in that, but we want to save face. And instead of giving it to God, we try to hide it from him. Even though we remember Psalm, uh, verses like Psalm 139 and verse 4, even before a word was on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. God knows exactly what we're going through. And so understand, what we're doing here is, even though this may not be our intent, what we're doing is trying to lie to our God. We don't want him to know that we suffer like this. Well, he already knows. And in fact, he wants us he wants us to do this so that way we can move forward. That way we can start to heal. Don't think that we can trick God. And don't think that this helps us either. Because if we decide to never open up to him, things, like I just said, will only get worse. And, and, and I mean much, much worse on us. I think about uh, the Beatitudes. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn. That's pretty interesting. We don't t really like to think about mourning. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's sorrowful. But what does he say is going to happen? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What am I learning from that? Well, one of the things I'm learning from that is that there's a sequence here. You're not going to be comforted until you mourn. If you want to be comforted by God, you're going to have to mourn for the right things. No application could be more clear than salvation. Before we can be comforted with eternal life, before we can be comforted with the victory that Jesus brings, we have to come to God and mourn, acknowledge our sins, because if we don't, he's not going to give it to us. There is no comfort for those that don't make that confession. There's no comfort for those that don't acknowledge that. And I think, it, I think there's a strong connection to the psalm here. The comfort can only occur after we have decided to mourn. We deprive ourselves of any growth if we don't allow these emotions to the surface so that God can resolve them. Not just so that we can vent you know, unrestrained, but so that way we can give them to God and he can fix them. If we never bring them to him, how can he? He says, I'm willing to do so. But if we're not willing to do our part, nothing's going to happen. There was, there was actually a couple times this has happened, unfortunately. But there was one uh, guy in particular that I was really close with growing up. He had a lot of questions. A lot of questions about faith, a lot of questions about evidences, a lot of questions just, just about the Bible. And the thing was, even though he had all these questions, he held it in. 
and he never wanted to ask them out loud. And so eventually what happened was after years of not asking these questions out loud, after years of keeping this, these things in, I mean, he would kind of let me know from time to time and I would try to talk to him about it. Sometimes I, I, I probably didn't talk to him about it as much as I should. But what happened is over the years, he finally got to the point where he just decided he was going to leave the Lord. And what was crazy was his reasoning was because no one could answer these questions. No one could answer these questions. You never addressed them. No one could answer these questions. You never actually asked. How is anybody supposed to answer a question if you don't first verbalize it? And especially verbalize it with those that, that know the scriptures. And, 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 and I, it's not the only time I've seen that. It's happened several times with very close friends. And I'm sure that's happened with you too. Because people aren't willing to, to verbalize these things. Again, not in an inappropriate way, but that they're not, able, they're not willing to give this over and actually deal with it. That is the outcome. If you are not willing to confess bitterness in your heart and your soul for a brother or sister in Christ, if you're not willing to confess that, acknowledge that, God's not going to fix it for you. If you are not willing to confess and acknowledge lust that you have in your soul, God's not going to fix it for you. You first have to mourn. You first have to give that, make that confession and acknowledgement. And then the comfort can come. Now, all of this being said, I also want to notice that it, throughout the psalm, you read through it again. Note that while he confesses feelings of frustration and confusion, he never oversteps. Yes, the language is not the most comforting and it's not the most positive, but he his sorrow, even though severe, and his confusion, even though great, is always tempered with faithfulness. And I, I think we are going to make that point as we continue throughout the study tonight. But you, you, thinking about that, go over to John chapter 11. Here's an, another good example, I think, of this. John chapter 11. You remember the story of Lazarus. He dies, and his sisters, Martha and Mary, are distraught by this. Jesus comes, and we know what's going to happen. He's going to raise Lazarus, but no one thinks that. No one up to this point, even when Jesus gets there, they don't understand that this is what his plan is. Look at Martha's conversation with Jesus. In John chapter 11, beginning in verse 21, it says, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, again, note here that Martha does not say, I know you're, you're about to do it. Look at what she says. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And you have a, a, a somewhat similar conversation between Mary and Jesus, but here's a beautiful shining moment of Martha. Because... And, and, and realize what she's saying here. She knows that Jesus could have stopped this. She knows that Jesus could have kept all of this from happening. All of this sorrow, the death, everything. He could have stopped it with a word. She understands this. And so what is she saying to Jesus? If you had been here, why, why couldn't you have stopped this? And I think you even get that from the disciples. You even hear some of that uh, as he's going to the tomb of Lazarus. Couldn't, couldn't, if he could heal a, a, a lame man, could he not have stopped this? That's the question that was on everybody's minds. 
In fact, it's the question that comes on a lot of people's minds today. Why is it that God let this happen? The problem up here is that I know he can stop it. The problem up here is I know that this didn't have to happen, but it did. Now what? What I love about Martha is she is, she's not so overwhelmed with depression that she goes too far. No, just like the psalmist, she expresses that, that sorrow and that confusion. But how does she end? You're, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. I know that you are. Now, that does not mean that she understands that he's about to resurrect Lazarus. That's a, that's a wonderful perk of this story. But she doesn't know that. Her comfort is, I know who you are. You are God. And I think that is really where the psalmist lies as well. And that's why he doesn't go too far. People sometimes say, when they're struck with, with, with deep depression, I don't know what to do. I feel like I can't find God. Much like David's uh, language in the Psalms, or Psalm 22, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that unless we go too far and curse God and die like Job's friends and, and wife tried to get Job to do. And what that would sound like is, I don't know where you are because you don't care about the afflicted. Job's friends went too far. Job may have gone too far in that. You know, I feel like I can't find you, God, and you know what? That's because you're dead. That's what a lot of atheists today the reason that they're atheists is because God did not do what they wanted him to do. And now they're bitter against him. We have to make sure that we're preparing for these moments because they can take us too far. But like the psalmist, like Martha, we need to be able to temper that with faithfulness. We need to temper it with faith. Now, not only is he honest when he speaks to God, but he seeks him diligently and earnestly. Go back to Psalm 88 in verse 1. <clears throat> Psalm 88 in verse 1. <clears throat> Psalm 88 and verse 1. Listen to what he says. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Verse 13, he talks about early in the morning I come to you. <laughs> Where does he start? He starts with God. Now, in verse 2, he says that he asks God, incline your ear to my cry. I think oftentimes, instead of asking God to incline his ear, what we do is first, we start by asking anyone else to incline theirs. And it always makes things worse. And, and you want to know why? I think it's ultimately because it's easier to surround ourselves in echo chambers. It's easier to surround ourselves. We, we love to ask the people to incline their ear that are always going to tickle ours. When we are in a bad situation, we want to be surrounded by the people that say, oh, don't worry about it, you're fine, you didn't do anything. Sometimes that's just not helpful. Sometimes we do need that, not contrary opinion, but the admonishing one. And sometimes we need someone to help us, you know, stick with reality and stay there. And not just maybe uh, pat our ego and tickle our ears. Instead of starting with God, what people tend to do is start their petition and their search for help and their search for refuge with the world. And one of the ways that this happens most often is the social media posts. And I, I, I'm just sick of it. And, and I mean, I say that com somewhat compassionately. I feel bad when I see people post on Facebook or they tweet something out or this is maybe the most obnoxious. People rant on TikTok, and that's just a video form. They're just, they're just speaking out all the emotions. <laughs> I think that's so unhelpful to just give that to the world. 
because I think one of two extremes is going to happen. One, you're just going to get more hurt because there's a group of people that are going to act like Job's friends when they hear all of this and they're going to say, well, you probably earned it. You're going to hear all of your suffering and they're going to think, well, even though I don't know anything about the situation, I don't know anything about your testimony, I have no other sources outside of this one post or this one video, but you know what? It's probably all your fault. What's that going to do? It's going to make things a lot worse. Compound the problem. Or you go to the other extreme and you just have, and, and, and I think sometimes people do this, I, I think a lot of times try to, people try to do this sincerely, but you have those, those comments that say, well, I'm praying for you. I mean, that, that means a lot. But does it mean much when it's just used as a pleasantry? Hey, hey, you have my prayers, but how often do people actually have the prayers? And it's really used as just a comment, just, just to salve, salve people's conscience, make people feel good. And where does that leave the person who actually made the post? I'm nowhere closer to getting past this ordeal. So it makes things worse. And, and, and this is not to say that we can't go to other sources for help. But first and foremost, we must go to God, knowing that He provides the most effective and the most important help that can be offered, period. And so, yes, we need to utilize the resources that we have, but if we're overlooking God or if we're taking those over God or more than God, that's a problem. And so we need to be careful about that, that we start with God and, and make sure that he has the primary attention, not anybody else, not the world, not anyone that, that isn't God. Well, I would also just add that th though the pain and the sorrow continue, though it persists, he doesn't allow that to dissuade him. He doesn't allow that to dissuade his faith. Instead, he continues to remain close to God in prayer. And I love that notion. You see that in verses 1 and 2. Day and night I have cried before you. You go to verse 8. You have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. In verse 13, I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help. And in the morning my prayer comes before you. Why do you get up early in the morning to do something? Generally because it's important. It looks like the psalmist viewed be coming before God in prayer as important, and it is. I think a lot of times people, Christians, what they do is they know, I need to pray, and I know that this is supposed to help, so I'm going to pray really quickly. And they give a 30-second prayer, kind of like we talked about at the very beginning of the lesson. But then, after that, now we're going to get to the things that actually help. Once I've, once I've done my due diligence, I'm going to pray once. Now we're just going to get away from this because I need to figure out what actually I need to do. Does that sound like Jesus? Look at, in Luke chapter 22. This is just one of many examples of how uh, Jesus often prayed to God. This was towards the end of his life, and this is while he is thinking about what's about to happen on the cross. But Jesus often lost sleep just to be with God in prayer, just to come before him, just to speak with him, just to be with him, whether it be for comfort, whether it be for petitions, like we see here in Luke chapter 22, in verse 39 beginning, it says, it, He came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing to remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. I love the way the English Standard puts this in verse 44, being in an agony. 
He prayed more earnestly, more fervently. What tends to happen is when, when we've done our due diligence with that prayer in the morning, things get a little bit harder throughout the day, something else happens, well, we'll just what's the point? <laughs> I have done what I'm supposed to do. It doesn't seem to matter. I'm just done. And, and we start to feel like Job because nothing is working. But here, Jesus is the very opposite. Instead of despair deterring him from God, it drives him closer to him. And that's the way it should be with us. There was a woman who, a long time ago, there was a woman who had just a, a worthless fellow as a husband. And he was just hopped up on drugs one night and he was becoming violent. She had to call the police. They took him away. She was up all night. She had several kids with her. And, and it was a sleepless and terrifying night for her. It was a Saturday night. Sunday morning, you get to the morning services and she comes in with her family, you know, except for her, her husband. And what was interesting is there was one member that came up to her and they said, well, what are you doing here? You know what she said? Where else should I be? <laughs> she had a sleepless night. It was very hard. You can imagine she was very tired, not just, not just from lack of sleep, but tired from the emotion. But where else should I be? Where else could I be? It reminds me so much of what Peter says in John chapter 6 and verse 68, when all the crowds are starting to leave Jesus because of his hard teachings, and he turns to the disciples, are you going to leave also? Peter, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else could we go? This is the kind of attitude we need to have. Not, not an attitude that just starts with God, but sticks with Him. And when more pain comes, and when it just keeps getting worse, and it seems like things are getting darker, guess what? That's the closer I'm going to stay steadfast to Him. And just because more suffering comes, it doesn't mean I'm going to leave Him. It just means I'm going to be more like Jesus, and I'm going to come to Him even more, at an, ever, at an even more uh, earnest and fervent way. Well, finally, he, he honestly speaks to God. He relentlessly seeks God, but he also does not forget his hope. He holds fast that hope. I think when you go back to Psalm 88, what we like to see often in our stories, not just in the Bible, but in the movies we watch, in the entertainment we take in, we like for the ending to be, and they lived happily ever after. The end. No more issues, no more problems, and you know what? All the bad guys are put away, they're done. Good wins. <laughs> the light has actually shone through. That's the way we like for it to end. But you look at Psalm 88. What's the last word again? Darkness. It starts there and it ends there. Now, we look at that and we think, what am I supposed to gain from this? How can this be a good ending? Well, consider something. While he is going through all of these emotions and he says, I don't know what's going on. Genuinely. Where does the author end? Where has he been? The same place he started. The same place he began, by going to God. The very fact that we have this prayer, I think, is that good ending. And I know that, that for some that may look like a stretch, but it's really not. Sometimes we have to be, we have to be real here. This is the only thing that's going to keep us tethered. This is the only thing that's going to keep us from going crazy. What am I supposed to do? I don't know, but I know I have God. 
Initially, it's not the ideal ending, but it's a good ending all the same because even though he's genuinely confused, he is still faithful to God. And this reminds me so much of Lamentations chapter 3. Jeremiah, after all the prophesying he's done, after everything that he's tried to do for the people of God, for God himself, finally the judgment comes. There was no escaping it. You talk about a day of darkness and gloom, this is it. You read through Lamentations. He is witnessing the temple being destroyed, God's house. He has witnessed the people of God being slain. How can any of this happen? If ever there was a day where there was no light at the end of the tunnel, this was it. But look at Jeremiah's words in the middle of, of, of agony. Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 21. This I recall to my... Well, first of all, let's, let's start in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness... Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. But this I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. When you sing that hymn, Great is thy faithfulness, do you think about the circumstances of Jeremiah? Would you be able to say these words in your day of darkness and gloom when you feel like there absolutely is no light at the end of the tunnel? Where is God? I can't see him. Jeremiah couldn't see him. But you know what? He realizes he's still there. Just because you can't see the sun during a storm doesn't mean it's not still shining. And guess what? It will shine through. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. The past month has felt like it was never going to happen. It may not happen for a long time, but guess what? The sun's still shining. Guess what? If it wasn't burning, no one would be here. Do you, re you realize that? It is so easy in the middle of a tremendous storm. When the clouds are heavy, it is so easy to forget that the sun is still burning. But the very fact that there's still life in us, <laughs> that means it's still doing its job. Let's make the connection to God. There's still life in me. I still have resolve within my soul you want to know why it's not because I can see the sun shining but I know it's there and I remember God in, my, in the day of my affliction the physical things of this world that will fade and turn to ash they're not my portion God is and that is why Jeremiah in the midst of such terrible circumstances can say this this is what keeps me going great is your faithfulness Would that we all could speak like this when these moments of great trial and tribulation come. To sound more like Jeremiah, to be more like the psalmist who goes to God, sticks with him, and does not forget that he is there. In fact, I would say it is very simply our relationship with him that may be the only light that we have left. Psalm 27 and verse 1, a very familiar passage, but what does he say? You are my light and my salvation. Sometimes that's not physical salvation here and now. That's just, I'm sorry, that's the facts. But just the hope we have in him in the end, that's the light. David went through many ordeals throughout his life that are not something I necessarily want to go through myself. But time and time again, he comes back. This is my salvation. He is my refuge. He is my rock. But nobody wants to hear this. 
Nobody wants to hear, I'm going to have to speak like this. I'm going to have to keep this resolve, even in the moments where I just feel like it's, it's, there's no way. This is impossible. I can't do it. Not anymore. We want it to be an immediate, immediate solution. Immediate conclusion. God says, you may have to keep going. You may have to walk a little bit more through the darkness. I, there was a, a book that I was required to read in, in well, I didn't actually read it myself. The only reason I remember it is because we read through it in class, so I had to pay attention. But it was actually a very impactful book. It was called Night. I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but by Ellie uh, Weisel. And he was a Jew that was basically basing this story off of his experiences in a Nazi concentration camp. And as he's writing about this, there was one, and I can't even, I'm not even going to describe the full cruelty of this scene but what they do is they have a gallows in the concentration camp and to further mock the prisoners they would hang a few people there and there was one individual that was near the main character that's writing this book that's writing this autobiographical account and he is saying where's where is merciful god where is god and he says this over and over again the chapter ends with with essentially the author saying where is god Right there at the gallows. Now, there have been some who say that there's been some debate on whether or not he kind of said this in despondent, defeated skepticism. This was the moment where his faith broke. I don't know whether that's the case or whether he was saying what I'm going to say in a moment. But even if he did say it in, in, in despond, despondency and skepticism, what he said was in reality true. God is not dead. But when his people suffer, where is he? When his people are suffering through the darkness, where do you think God is? Go over to Hebrews chapter 4. We read this earlier this morning, but Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. And this, I think, gives us a little bit more context. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. In Hebrews chapter 2, there's something similar said. The fact that Jesus has gone through these things, he's gone through these things to give us an example. The fact that he's gone through these things, it shows us that he understands. It shows us that he <laughs> is the one who has been in that seat of death. That he has been the one in that seat of despair. So where is God? It, it, one more book that I'd like to bring up. This is probably one of my favorite books and, and one of my favorite moments throughout all the series of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's the prequel, The Magician's Nephew. And the main, one of the main characters, Diggory, he is trying to basically find a cure for his mother as he's in this land of Narnia. He's trying to figure out a way to, to cure his mother of a disease, an incurable disease. Aslan is kind of this figure that's supposed to represent Christ uh, from C.S. Lewis's perspective. And as he's trying to think through this and figure out how he can cure his mother, what am I supposed to do? I, I want you to listen to this. It, Diggory says, but please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up till then... He had been looking at the lion's feet and the huge claws on them. This is Aslan. Now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. 
They were such big, bright tears compared to Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know, grief is great. <laughs> Where, in that moment, when those people were swinging from the gallows and Ellie Weisler is wondering, where is God? He is right there. That's what Jesus had to do. That's what Jesus has gone through. So that way you and me could get through this silly little thing that we're going through. No matter how big, no matter how small, he has been through the worst of it so that we can get through it and that we can have that salvation that only comes through him. God is with his people even when things look bleak, even when we do not see the salvation near. Don't you remember that, that story in 2 Kings chapter 6 where Elisha with, with the servant there, he, he thinks that they are outnumbered, but oh, how wrong he was. Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes. And what did he find? It was not God that was outnumbered, but they were surrounded by the heavenly host, by, the, by God's soldiers. I wonder how many times we need our eyes to be opened in those kinds of moments. Psalm 18 and verse 28 says, For you light my lamp, the Lord my God illumines my darkness. Christian, can you say that? Maybe you've been struggling with some things that we've been talking about this evening. Have you been able to say that? Is your relationship with God enough to keep you steadfast? If not, make it so. Start now. Start preparing now so that way when these moments come, God can use you like he was trying to use Job. Have you considered my servant, Job? If you're not a Christian, again, we come back to that question, where is God? That is the skeptic's cry when they see evil in the world. And that's what they try to use to, to try and taunt people into saying, how can your God be so great if you, all this suffering, all this evil is in the world? Don't, don't let that swoon you because you know where God is. This, I, I even heard this in a debate one time. One of the, uh, an atheist said, where was God when Jesus died? What then? When? He was on the cross for you and me. Are you willing to pick up your own and follow after him? We sang footprints of Jesus earlier this morning. Are you willing to follow after his footprints? Note where they end. You may have to go through suffering. You may have to go through more agony. But they end at the throne of God. They end in glorification through the Son. Are you willing to put him on in baptism tonight? Are you, are you, if you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.